You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Um, all right, Genesis chapter 25, we're going to be in verse 19. We had left off um, with the death of Abraham, but it's probably uh, worth mentioning that when we pick back up here in the story, Abraham's not dead. Kind of weird, um, but the way that it's written, the author goes ahead and writes about Abraham's death to kind of close that chapter out because we don't have Abraham mentioned again from the living standpoint, but I think it's helpful to note that he is alive uh, during the first part of Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the story that we're looking at. So um, just kind of wanted to mention that we did talk extensively about uh, Abraham's funeral and how it pointed to uh, God's glory, but ultimately, uh, as we pick back up, Abraham is uh, still alive during this time. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, starting in verse 19, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethul, the Aramean of Pananaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You'll remember that before Abraham dies, he is concerned about his son, concerned about the ongoing, continued legacy of the promises that have been given to him and the covenant that's been made with Abraham. And so Abraham wants to ensure that that continues. So he takes great care to choose a servant to go back to their homeland, uh, to choose a wife for Isaac. And so uh, we saw that kind of play out. Rebecca responds to the request to come and marry Isaac, and they're married. And uh, we transition now to seeing Isaac as the one who continues the promises of God. Um, and she's barren. And so Isaac prays that uh, she'll conceive. And it says that uh, the Lord granted his prayer, and she did conceive. And in verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It's an interesting story, and it wouldn't be as interesting if we didn't have some difficult passages to go along with it, um, specifically in Romans chapter 9. And it's interesting um, that almost a year to the day that I preached Romans 9, um, or actually two years to the date, so it was two years ago in May, that we were working through the book of Romans and we came to Romans chapter nine and we worked through uh, the implications of God's sovereignty and salvation and uh, how God's promises in Romans eight are verified in Romans nine, that God has not failed despite the fact that Israel looks to be unfaithful and in their response that um, Paul relates to us in Romans chapter nine, that God's plans are still intact exactly how he planned for them to be, uh, that God... Um, has plans for a portion of Abraham's descendants that just because they come from Abraham doesn't make them actual descendants of Abraham from a spiritual standpoint. And so we worked through a lot of the difficulty of that passage. 
Um, and now we'll have to kind of reopen some of that again as we look back into Genesis now when we look at the narrative of that story that we covered in Romans chapter 9. It's a difficult passage because um, it does relate to us the, the concepts of uh, man's choice and God's choice and how those two go together. Um, we see God giving two sons and ultimately bestowing a different level of grace and a different level of working in one's life over the other's life and how can God be just and fair to do to one what he doesn't uh, seemingly do to another? And so we're going to work through uh, some of those things today. So today we're looking at God choosing Jacob over Esau. Um, it's important to note that according to the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, what plays out here after the birth of these two individuals and where they go in life and where they end up uh, was seemingly predetermined before their birth, uh, before they had ever done anything wrong, before they had ever made any choices, that, that God in his sovereignty, for the purposes of his plans and for his glory, uh, he, he brings a prophecy to Rebecca, right? He tells Rebecca, this is how it's going to play out, that um, while cultural conventions would tell you that the older son is the one that would inherit everything from Abraham, um, that it's going to be the younger son. We saw that as well with Ishmael and Isaac. Now, from our standpoint, we can say, well, Isaac's the promised child because he's Rebekah's son. Ishmael belonged to Hagar. So it, it makes sense to us that, that Isaac would inherit everything. But here in this situation, the older son is rejected. The older son does not receive the promises of God. The older son uh, goes on his own way, um, embraces other gods, and, and develops a nation that, that has nothing to do with God. Whereas the younger, um, God bestows his promises to him. And, and it has national implications for Israel as they grow out of Jacob. And it certainly has uh, salvific implications as well as, as um, the, the word of God is passed on to Jacob and his descendants. And so we're going to see how, how these things work together, hopefully. Um, I worked really hard on the summary sentence. You know that I try to give you a, a sentence at the very beginning of the sermon to let you know where we're going um, so that you can uh, kind of see the end of the sermon before we actually get there. Um, and then we try to unpack that sentence throughout the sermon. Um, this is a really lengthy sentence and a very meaty sentence, but I'm excited to unpack it with you today. So our summary sentence. The predetermined destinies of Jacob and Esau are difficult to accept. Okay, just that, that concept that these two boys and where they were going seems to be determined before they ever make any choices. It's difficult to accept what God says to us in Romans 9, what he says to us in Malachi chapter 1, which is where Paul quotes from when he says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. These concepts are difficult to accept because they imply that God's grace does not bow to human reasoning or ideas of fairness. Okay, the reason this is difficult for us to swallow is because it goes contrary to what we think of when we reason through how God should function and how God should operate. Um, it goes against what we believe would be fair. It removes the external factors of character and works as the determining reasons for God's grace, and instead reveals his sovereign choice as the fuel of his grace which eliminates all grounds for boasting. All right, so the predetermined destinies of Jacob and Esau are difficult to accept because they imply 
that God's grace does not bow to human reasoning or ideas of fairness, removing the external factors of character and works as the determining reasons for God's grace, and instead revealing his sovereign choice as the fuel of his grace, which eliminates all grounds for boasting. It's a big fancy way to say that God chose Jacob for reasons we do not understand, right? He clarifies for us in Romans 9, I did not choose Jacob because I thought Jacob was going to do a better job than Esau. I didn't choose Jacob because I looked ahead and felt like he was going to make right choices and Esau was going to make wrong choices. He does it before anything ever plays out. He makes a choice that Jacob is going to be the one that inherits the promises. And it's difficult for us because we want to reason from a human standpoint. We want to argue for a, an idea of fairness. And the moment that we even begin to suggest that Jacob is the promised child because of anything related to Jacob, it gives Jacob grounds to boast. And what we see in the New Testament is that God's salvation and how God works his plan, it's always designed so that there are no grounds for boasting before him. And that's hard. And I was even thinking through it last night. It's hard for me because in our, in our lingering sinful pride, we want a reason to boast for why we are who we are and why we're in the positions that we're in today and why we are on a path of sanctification and why we've made choices to follow Jesus. We want in our sinful pride to think it's something that we've done, some character attribute of us that made the right choice when other people that we see continue to reject Jesus. Look at me, look in my wisdom. I was able to discern the facts and realize that this is the right choice to make. We want that. We want the ability to boast that there's something about us that makes us lovable to God. We want that. We want that from a self-esteem standpoint. We want to believe and feel that there's something that we offer, something that we've done, something about who we are that makes us acceptable and lovable to God. And what we find in the New Testament is that everything about God's grace towards us is completely contrary to that. That it's nothing about us, it's nothing that we've done, that it's simply because of who he is and because of his love that he extends grace to anyone. And by definition, for him to be gracious means that we don't deserve it, right? If there was anything about us that warranted God's grace, it no longer is grace. Instead, God is indebted to us. God owes it to us. If you're special, if you've accomplished something that now warrants God's goodness to you, he owes it to you versus him graciously giving it to you. And so I think God is very specific in how he communicates in Genesis this story. And we've talked about this before. God oftentimes records things in the Old Testament to set up New Testament writers with the material that they're going to need to make points theologically for us. And so I think Paul in Romans 9 is able to make all the points that he makes in that chapter because God very intentionally included this story for us. There's all kinds of stories that happen in the Old Testament that God doesn't put in the Bible, right? But for whatever reason, he intentionally makes sure that we hear about these two boys that are born, how they're brought into this earth, how they're brought into this family, and how their destinies play out, and how God was very sovereignly in control 
from the very beginning. All right, so Jacob and Esau, their destinies is difficult to accept because our human reasoning and our ideas of fairness would, would say something different that God should choose based on their character or based on what they were going to do with the choices that they were given. Instead, God removes all the external factors of character and works and instead reveals that his sovereign choice fuels his grace and it eliminates all grounds of boasting. All right, we're going to get into the text and see how this plays out, but a couple of introductory thoughts to give you before we look at the actual text. First of all, those chosen to receive God's grace and those who remain as objects of God's wrath are both hopelessly self-centered and incapable of doing consistent good by themselves. Let me say that again. Those chosen to receive God's grace, so those that receive God's grace and, and, and his blessing, and those who remain as objects of God's wrath, not because God made them sinful, right? We are born into sin because of Adam and Eve's choice. So God doesn't make evil, God doesn't make evil human beings. We are born in that condition. But both, those that God gives grace to and those that God does not give grace to, are hopelessly self-centered people. And they're incapable of doing consistent good by themselves. Think about Jacob and Esau. Right? We can talk about Esau's flaws. We can talk about Esau's poor choices. We can talk about how um, Esau is, is frivolous and short-sighted when it comes to his birthright. We're going to talk about the, uh, the choices that he makes in marriage and how that's difficult for Isaac and Rebekah to embrace and to, to cope with. We're going to see uh, his choices and how it unfolds for the, the Edomites that come from him and, and how his choices have uh, far-reaching effects on his descendants. But then when we look at Jacob, we find a guy who's not a whole lot better, right? We see even maybe more flaws in Jacob because the text really focuses on Jacob as we move forward. And we see a scheming individual uh, who has been blessed and given things by God, but rather than waiting patiently for those things to, to come about, he tries to seize those. He tries to go after those. He's lying. Uh, he's manipulative. Um, at times he yields to, uh, his wife and the choices that she makes for religion over what he knows to be right for his family. Uh, we could even argue that he shows favoritism towards his children, maybe favoritism that he learned from his father. Uh, because we're going to see that Isaac and Rebecca help contribute to the struggle that Jacob and Esau face because they seem to choose which twin they like better. Um, and then we're going to see Jacob kind of exhibit that same character when he starts to have boys and, and chooses one that he values over the others because of his mom, because of his mom. Jacob's not a great guy, right? Like if we're looking at who deserves God's grace more, neither one of them deserve God's grace. And that's the essence of what we're even talking about when we mention God's grace is that none of us deserve any of God's goodness or any of the grace that he gives to us. There's nothing in us. There's no character trait or work that we accomplish to where God now says, you deserve this. All right. Um, so both these guys end up being uh, hopelessly self-centered. And unless God steps in into Jacob's life, his destiny would have looked very similar to Esau's. Um, as our video mentioned that we watched this morning, the majority of the moral lessons learned from this section come not from following examples, but avoiding their faults, right? This is not a great section of scripture to go to, to start talking about examples that we should follow. Instead, we're going to see time and time again, probably shouldn't do that again, probably shouldn't do that again, probably shouldn't do that again. We're going to see more from Jacob's life and Isaac 
things that we shouldn't do versus things that we should try to apply to our life. Okay? And then number three, our third introductory thought. Uh, these initial verses here set the stage for the coming chapters. What we see right off the bat here, uh, starting in verse 19, sets the stage for the rest of Jacob's life. There's a mention here in verse 20 that Rebekah is related to Laban. Lest we have forgotten that. You'll remember Laban was kind of enamored with Rebekah when she comes back with the servant's jewels and bracelets and wants to welcome Abraham's servant and wants to kind of push Rebekah in that direction because he's kind of fallen in love with the gifts that the servant brought. Um, we're going to see Laban pop up again and play a, a big part in Jacob's life. Ends up costing him 14 years of his life as he tries to uh, gain one of Laban's daughters for, uh, for his wife. Um, so, so that becomes a theme in Jacob's life. We also see the concept of barrenness. Um, Rebecca is not the last person to be barren in the book of Genesis. And we're going to see that barrenness, um, the, the, the womb that cannot produce children pops up in Jacob's life as well. Um, and then we're also going to see a struggle that continues to unfold. So there's a brief mention of the struggle that will happen between Jacob and Esau here in the end of Genesis 25. It's a struggle that's going to carry on for chapter after chapter after chapter as we continue to move through the book of Genesis. But let's start with our text today by starting with uh, what we're introduced to here. A barren womb pops up again here in the personhood of Rebecca. You'll remember we dealt extensively with uh, Sarah and her barrenness and how that really uh, forced Abraham and Sarah to evaluate the faith that they had and um, their understanding of God's promises and trusting God's promises. And years and years pass where they have to really believe that God is going to deliver, despite the fact that in all their human effort, they cannot produce a child with each other. And we saw how that kind of played out with other, other opportunities and other attempts to make children happen. Um, Abraham and Sarah both coming up with different plans to try to accomplish this. Here, Rebecca is brought into this family, um, and I think immediately she experiences what we can call unfulfilled uh, expectations. And our uh, screen has stopped functioning properly. Um, unfulfilled expectations. By, by that I mean, Rebecca would have, um, she would have expected, I think, to be pregnant very quickly. Remember, as the servant comes and begins to talk about Abraham and begins to relate to her who Isaac is, the concept of the promises, the concept of, um, the offspring that's supposed to come from Abraham's family, those things would have been topics of conversation. So she's brought in and she marries an individual who is 40 years old. Now remember, time's a little bit different back then than it is now, but we know that as Abraham hit 80, 90, 100, that was considered very old for having kids, even at that time. So at the age of 40, if we're going to be a family that produces a lot of offspring, it's time for us to start having kids really right off the bat. So she's brought to him. They go into the tent. They become husband and wife. And I think the expectation would have been very quickly, we are supposed to start having children. Um, and we see very quickly that she realizes that she can't have children. Um, Isaac is the chosen son. Rebecca is the chosen bride. You'll remember we saw that God was very providentially working out different details in that story. Remember, God doesn't speak at all in that chapter, but we see God directing the servant, directing Rebecca. 
She waters the servants' camels. Like God's footprints and handprints are all over that story, bringing Rebecca back to Isaac. So promised son, chosen bride. You're thinking this is the perfect ingredients for the offspring to really start flowing now, right? Abraham and Sarah were kind of the guinea pigs. Y'all are going to have to trust God. You're not going to get a child until old age, and you're only going to get one between the two of you. Now Isaac and Rebecca will really start to flow. I mean, they're just going to start having kids, and the stars and, and the uh, promises are really going to become apparent. And that doesn't happen, right? Uh, Isaac and Rebecca are going to have to learn these lessons as well. Um, 20 years goes by before they have children. 20 years goes by. So we have some unfulfilled expectations, I think, right off the bat here in their marriage. We also, I think, have some difficult comparisons. Remember when Ishmael comes back to help Isaac bury Abraham, we're exposed to the fact that Ishmael has been having kids, right? Specifically sons. And he's, have, he's had 12 sons, just as God promised he would have. And they're going to produce different nations. And I think Ishmael or uh, Isaac would have had a very difficult time not comparing himself to his brother Ishmael. Isaac's thinking, I'm the promised son. Um, I'm supposed to carry on my dad's legacy. And yet my brother's the one that seems to be reaping all the blessings. Um, and so there would have been the opportunity for some difficult comparisons here, I think, for Isaac. And I think his faith would have been tested. Do I continue to trust God or do I begin to doubt his goodness? I put in my notes, while others surge ahead of you, remember God is more interested in what is happening inside of you rather than around you. Let me say that again. While others surge ahead of you, and I think Isaac could have easily felt that way. Here's Ishmael. He's taken off. He's got a family. He's having kids. Why can't I really get moving in that direction? While others surge ahead of you, remember God is more interested in what is happening inside of you rather than around you. God has everything lining up the way that he wants it. He's more concerned about Isaac and the character traits and the lessons that he's learning and the trust that he's gaining in God God's not worried about the, the children at this point. He's not worried about what Ishmael's doing and how many kids Ishmael has and how Isaac's not having children. Um, God's more concerned about what's playing out in the inside of Isaac, I think. The implication here from this section right off the bat is we are reminded that the promised offspring through the line of Abraham does not come by human effort. These stories here help us better understand what the New Testament talks about, that those who are truly the sons and daughters of Abraham are those who have experienced a spiritual birth. A spiritual birth that does not come through human effort. A spiritual birth that is given strictly by the grace of God, where we are born again through the Holy Spirit, regenerating us, opening our eyes to the conviction of our sin and to the grace that is extended to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And so what we see looking back into the Old Testament is that God was very clear that the promised offspring of Abraham was not going to come by human effort. Doesn't matter what Abraham and Sarah did. Doesn't matter what Isaac and Rebecca do. They cannot produce children. They cannot produce offspring without God doing something supernatural. I'm sure Isaac became very worried as he began to understand Rebecca's barrenness, wondering how long it would take for him to actually have a child. And I think it's, it's worth noting in verse 21 that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. He immediately turns to prayer 
when he discerns this problem. He doesn't blame Rebecca or the servant that chose Rebecca for this predicament. It would have been really easy and potentially even some of us in this room would have fallen prey to this. To blame Rebecca for this predicament. You know, he, he watched his dad have to deal with this. Remember, we saw that, that, that dad wasn't the one that was sterile, right? He can have a child with Hagar, so Sarah becomes the problem. They didn't have the medical, uh, the medical uh, studies that we have today for them to be able to go to a doctor and for the doctor to say, it's Abraham or it's Sarah. But they're able to figure it out now. He's able to have kids with Hagar, and Sarah can't, all right? And so now Isaac's kind of put in the same predicament, and we don't see him turning on her. And he could have easily turned on the servant. Remember, he could have easily blamed the servant for choosing this woman that can't have kids. Like, your one job was to go back to my home and find a woman that can come have kids with me. And we can continue to build this nation that God has promised to us. And you chose the one woman that can't have children. Right? He could have easily blamed everybody in his life for this. But his, his first response that we're given in the text is that he turns to God in prayer. Notice he doesn't resort to other methods to bring about offspring like his father Abraham did. That's why I wanted to mention to you that Abraham's alive at this time. Abraham's alive to see the birth of Jacob and Esau. And so it may have been some some daddy-son conversations that even took place here. Dad, like, I'm really concerned. Like, Rebecca's my wife and she's not having children. What advice do you have for me? And this is where maybe Abraham steps in and says, don't even think about going the surrogate surrogate route. Don't even think about bringing another woman into this. Like, it'll have awful implications long term. Like, so so if you and Rebecca have even been talking about this, drop that conversation right now. Um, And I'm sure he began to instill an understanding of faith into Isaac as he talks about the years that he had to wait and, and how God eventually provided. And we see... Seemingly, if those conversations are happening, that Isaac responds immediately by going to God in prayer. I think it's worth noting, too, that he prays for probably 20 years for something that God has already promised to do. He's 40 when he gets married. He's 60 when Jacob and Esau are born. And if we're talking about those unfulfilled expectations, I really think he expected to get pregnant quick. I really think he expected to have kids quickly. So I think when they didn't, that the, that the red flags would have been raised early. Okay, so I don't think Isaac and Rebecca said, hey, we're going to take 10 years. She's got a career she's going to explore. I've got some things that I still want to do. I don't think 10 years passed before they start trying to have kids. I think immediately the expectation was, let's get pregnant. We need to start having kids. So I think he would have realized very quickly, we're not having kids. And I don't think it would have taken him 20 years to say, ah, it's probably time to start praying about this. Especially given the family history of not being able to have kids. I, in my studies and just looking at the text, I really think Isaac maybe spends 20 years praying for this. And I don't want to just jump over that really quick and, and get into the rest of the story. Because I want us to just pause for a second there and think about the fact, is there anything that any of us have ever prayed for that approaches any length of time like 20 years. For some of us, there may be something. For a lot of us, we're probably thinking, gosh, after a year, I would just assume it's not God's will and I'm moving on and I'm updating my prayer list. I think it's worth noting too that that Isaac is praying for something that God has promised will happen. 
right? This isn't, this isn't like a lot of our prayer requests where we pray and say, God, I don't know if you want me to have this job or not. So if you do want me to have it, open the door. But at the end of the day, if I don't get it, I can't really hold it over you because you never promised to give me this job, right? Isaac's praying for something for 20 years and he's praying for something that has to happen because God has promised that it'll happen, right? That's the only reason that it has to happen is because God has verbalized that it will happen, that Isaac and Rebecca will have at least one child to carry on this family lineage. And I'm just, I'm, I was really, in studying this last night, um, I was just really blown away thinking about those two points. One, he's praying about something for 20 years. And two, he's praying about something that in our minds, technically we would think, I don't need to pray about this because it has to happen. You know, like even in the book of Revelation, there's this idea that we pray for Jesus to come back, right? Come, Lord Jesus. I think most of us think "Eh, Jesus will come back when he wants to. He has to come back. There's really no reason to pray for something that the Bible promises will happen. And in fact, those are the very things that we should spend our time praying for, right? Those are the ones that we should feel the most confidence in coming to God and asking for. That's why even in this morning praying, like I wanted to model even what I'm thinking here. Praying, okay, the fact is, is that God promises if we will not neglect meeting together, if we won't neglect meeting together, then we will find encouragement to fight sin and we will find encouragement to persevere. That's a promise to us. So as we gather here on a Sunday morning, we should pray that that'll happen. And we should pray confidently realizing it will happen because God's promised it. Isaac prays for 20 years for something that has to happen. And I think that's worth noting. It's worth contemplating as we leave today. What things are we praying for? How invested are we in praying for things that don't happen quickly? Because it's a teaching tool for God to teach us patience and reliance upon him. And are we faithfully praying for things that we know God has promised to do this word here, just to kind of tag off of that, this word here uh, really implies expectantly that he prayed for this because it's the same word that Moses uses when he asked God to remove the Egyptian plagues. Remember, uh, Pharaoh says, if you'll relent from this, I'll let the people go. And so Moses would pray to God that the plagues would stop. Moses clearly prayed expectantly, believing that when I ask for this, God's going to stop this plague. Isaac's praying expectantly, believing that God is going to provide a child here. All right, so we've got a persistent prayer. Faith rather than doubt is expressed. All right, he could have doubted like Abraham. Abraham seems to be, before he dies, still passing on his legacy. And Isaac kind of skips the, the sidetracks there and goes straight to God um, and expresses faith rather than doubt. And then secondly, what we find in the text is that sorrow rather than joy is received. So God responds... It says in verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So you're thinking this is a good thing. But then we find in verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And you could potentially interpret the language that she's using there as I wish God hadn't answered my prayer. Like this is awful. All right. We, we talked about difficult pregnancies during our prayer request time this morning. The implication is that this is a this is a very difficult pregnancy. Um, and one, she doesn't have the benefits of, of a ultrasound to even see that there's two children going on. So there may have been a lot of confusion. Right. For us, we're thinking, well, she should have just realized that her twins are like bumping into each other and, and trying to make room for each other. 
we're not told for sure that she even knows she's having twins at this point. Right? But she realizes something crazy is going on. This is, this is unlike what's normally being described to me by my servants and my maidservants and uh, by others that I know that have had children. This is different and something's not right. And she realizes that this is not uh, normal. And she's distressed over it. Rather than experiencing joy, I think she's experiencing some sorrow here. And she too inquires of the Lord. She goes to the Lord for answers for this issue. God supernaturally opens Rebecca's womb as asked. Psalm 113.9 reminds us the psalmist praises God as a God who can open barren wombs. But her joy is quickly turned to distress as her womb becomes a battlefield. The Hebrew language here portrays the two boys as smashing into each other. Like, I don't think this is just two boys that are, that are in one womb and it's hard to make room for each other. The implication seems to be that the struggle that they're going to have for the rest of their life is ongoing in the womb. And if you start to really kind of play out the Edomites and the Israelites and the tension that exists, you keep going down the line and you realize Herod, Herod has, has Edomite blood in him. The same Herod that tries to kill the baby boys to eliminate Jesus. And this is very possibly another situation where Satan is trying to extinguish the messianic line right here in the womb. That there is turmoil inside of her, potentially driven by Satan here, where I'm trying to eliminate the Messiah that's supposed to come and crush my head. And, and, and Rebecca's torn over this, and she comes to God asking for answers to her dilemma. Persistent prayers by both Isaac and Rebecca. The implication for us is that when we turn to prayer, we fight against tendencies to complain and or blame and temptations to become self-reliant. We said Isaac had the opportunity to complain about Rebecca, to complain about the servant or to blame them both for their predicament. He could have become self-reliant in trying to figure out how to have a kid in a, in a different way like his dad did. But both Isaac and Rebecca set a good example for us. So while for the majority of the time we're going to have to say, don't do what these people do, this is one of those times where we can say, this is, a, this is a great example to follow. This is a model example of how they turn to God in prayer, asking God for things that he's promised to do, and also inquiring of God with a situation that they don't fully understand. And God responds and answers her prayer as well with a clarifying prophecy. So God does answer her, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's a clarifying prophecy here. First of all, God sovereignly provides a child of promise here, and he assures her of that. Yes, you have children inside of you. You are pregnant. And God has provided a child of promise when for 20 years there was no child of promise. God chooses to bless her with twins that will lead to nations. As we're going to see this unfold, the sons will eventually father the nations of Israel and Edom. But as we're going to see, there will be ongoing conflict between the brothers and eventually the nations. The tension is felt as they are described as complete opposites. Look at how it unfolds when they're born. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You can just feel the tension building here. We got two twins that are apparently not identical, right? They are two radically different individuals. They look different. They act different. Their parents interact with them differently. And we're going to see that contention just continue to build. It's going to affect how they interact with each other as they get older. Um, and so you can feel the tension building. I think the parents contribute uh, to this tension as well based on how they interact with the boys. Uh, they probably uh, worsen the divide that's going to be experienced here. But God chooses to, to bless a barren womb. He chooses to open this womb and to give the promised child. But secondly, in this prophecy, we see God sovereignly chooses which child will continue the promise. They've done nothing to, to define who should be the promised child and who should not be. But God gives insight to Rebecca that the older will serve the younger. It's the younger that will carry on the promised traditions that have been passed to, to Abraham and to Isaac. We're not told why Isaac doesn't yield to this, because we're going to see that, I mean, we've already seen here in the text that Isaac loves Esau, really seems to favor Esau over Jacob. And even when it comes time to bless, I mean, I have no reason to think that Rebecca would have withheld this information. I've got to think that Rebecca told him, hey, here's the prophecy. But we're going to see that Isaac just ignores the prophecy. Like he has every intent to bring Esau in and to bless Esau rather than Jacob. Um, but God reveals to us here in this passage that he's sovereignly chosen Jacob over Esau. He's going to bless one son over the other. In my notes here, God reverses the roles by choosing to elevate the younger over the older. Esau's the natural choice. He's the firstborn. He's even father's choice, right? He's Esau's choice to be the one that's going to carry on uh, the name of the family. But God rejects both, both the natural choice and the father's choice, and decides that Jacob will be the promised son. The destinies of the boys are seen through the lens of God's choice. Um, in Romans chapter 9, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to, uh, to Romans chapter 9, we're going to try to um, see the unity in Genesis 25, Malachi 1, and Romans chapter 9 here at the very end. Um, but in Romans chapter 9, in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The destinies of these boys are seen through the lens of God's choice, not because of things they do, not because of their character, not because of their good works. God guarantees the promise will continue through Jacob before the drama and tension of his life begins to play out. Because we're going to see... There, there's, there's fear surrounding whether Jacob's even going to live long enough to be the promised child, that Esau wants to kill him, that Esau wants to retaliate. But God tells us up front, as readers of this story, that Jacob will make it, that Jacob will live, because he's the chosen brother. 
God's choice applied to the nations as well. So these nations that these boys will father are the recipients of this choice. In Malachi chapter 1, the other passage that mentions this, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. At this time when Malachi is prophesying, the, the children of Israel were, were not sure they believed that God loved them and, and, and had chosen them over Esau because from their perspective, Esau's descendants were prospering and they were under God's judgment. And God reminds them that as this continues to play out, they too will be under God's judgment for their sin. The difference being is that God will not rebuild them as he will Israel. He says, that's the distinguishing difference between you two. I've loved you and I've not loved Esau. I've chosen Jacob. I've chosen not Esau. Esau will be judged. You will be judged. Esau and his descendants will not be rebuilt. The implication for us here is that God has his own purposes of glory at play that do not always meet our expectations. God has his own purposes of glory at play that do not always meet our expectations. We would read this passage and think that Esau would be the chosen one because he's the firstborn. What we find is that God has different plans at play here. And because he's God and because he's creator and because this is his universe, he has every prerogative to do things the way that he wants to. In Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In 1 Corinthians 1, we're reminded by Paul that God oftentimes chooses the exact opposite of how we choose in order for himself to receive the glory. In verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 1, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the theme we talked about at the very beginning, that God does things in such a way that boasting cannot happen before him. All right, so that's kind of the... The text presented, we have Isaac and Rebecca unable to have children. We have a barren womb. We see how they address that barren womb. They begin to pray, both of them praying. Isaac praying for the, the womb to be open. God responds, prays for 20 years, prays for something that God has promised to do. It's worth us walking away and saying, hey, I need to be faithful in my prayer. I need to pray for things that God has promised to do. Rebecca turns to God when things aren't going the way that she thought they would go. And God blesses her with a revelation of what's going on, gives her deeper insight into how his plans are playing out behind the scenes. In that prophecy, we see God revealing that he's chosen to do some things and he's choosing not to do other things in the lives of these two sons. But as we close, how should we understand Genesis 25 with Malachi 1 and Romans 9? Malachi 1, as we've already saw, God dictates through Malachi to his people that he loves the one and hates the other. Paul draws upon that language in Romans 9. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Immediately we would look at that and say, why? That's not fair. If, we're, if they haven't done anything yet, how can you make that kind of choice to love one and hate the other? Verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul anticipates us hearing that today and feeling a little uneasy in ourselves. Wait, you got two boys that are twins that are little babies and you're choosing to love one and not love the other. How does that work? How can that be fair? That seems completely uh, unjust. Paul says, by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So the argument then is, okay, if I'm going to admit that God chose to love one and not chose the other, then how can there be fault with Esau? Paul anticipates that question. Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Unfortunately, Paul doesn't answer the question. He, he, he says, you can feel this way, but you don't get to ask these questions and feel like you deserve answers because you're not the potter you're the clay. We had a great opportunity to have Dan Dunahoo, who was an elder at the church that I was previously serving at, come and do our chapel service at Trinity. He's a guy who loves pottery, um, picked up this love through his wife, um, began to date her, and she wanted him to build her a, a pottery wheel. And so he began to, to, to sculpt this and make this and really fell in love with pottery because of his wife's interest. And he, he now, as part of his ministry, as part of his teaching ministry, he goes to different churches and different organizations and and makes pottery, but then talks about the spiritual implications of this passage and a passage in Jeremiah that relates God to the potter and us as the clay. And he begins to show how God molds and shapes and, and takes clay that has, that has no real purpose in and of itself as it is and uses it, takes it and molds it and sculpts it into a useful object for the potter's purposes. And that's the picture we see here in Scripture, that God takes sinful man and chooses to work in some of those men and, and women and develops uh, vessels of glory that he saves and rescues and bestows grace upon. And then there's others that remain in their sinful condition that he uses for glorious purposes as well. And Paul says, that's going to be confusing to you, and it's going to have to just stay confusing to you on some level. Because we serve a God who is more interested in his glory. And when I talked on Romans 9, we said that God has obligated himself to be glorious, not universalistic. Meaning, he has not obligated himself to save everyone. He has made it, he has designed it to where he will save a remnant for his glorious purposes. And he does so, and he, and he rescues people for reasons we don't understand. It's certainly not because we deserve it. It's certainly not because of our character or our good works. Otherwise, we would deserve it, and it would no longer be grace. And we see God, God playing out his plan here and giving us some insight, but then withholding some of the information from us. 
What's at stake here? It's understanding how God's favor is applied to man. And what we see here is that God chooses the recipients of his grace according to this passage. And in context, Israel, Paul's talking here, Israel expected this to apply to them based on their ancestry and were disappointed when it didn't. If you turn to John chapter 8, you'll find a conversation with Jesus and some of the Pharisees. And they believed that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were chosen by God to be saved. And it was because they were tied to Abraham. And Jesus says, Abraham's not even your real father based on the way you live. Satan is your father. He says, just because you come from Abraham doesn't make you a spiritual descendant of Abraham. You're acting more like Satan than you are Abraham. And so Jesus has this on discussion. Paul's carrying that conversation on in Romans chapter 9 where he tells him, look, doesn't matter that you come from Abraham. Doesn't matter that you come from Isaac. Doesn't matter that you come from Jacob. What matters is whether or not you have faith or not. Because at the end of Romans chapter 9... He says that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. In Malachi chapter 1, the children of Israel are mad because they believe Esau's descendants are prospering. In Romans chapter 9, it looks as though the word has failed because the Gentiles are prospering. Both passages are used by Paul in Romans chapter 9 to show us that the spiritual children of faith are the ones that God has chosen to receive his grace. And I think it's important to note here, too, when we talk about this love-hate relationship, that the terms love and hate for us are tied to emotions and affections that we have. They're being used in this passage as how God responds and interacts with these two boys and their descendants. Um, And so it's more tied to the response versus uh, any type of affection that he feels. In fact, you'll find in Deuteronomy 23, 7 that the children of Israel were banned from hating Esau's descendants. So it would be inconsistent for God to to uh, to do something that he's withholding his uh, his people from doing. All right. And in fact, Jesus says we're supposed to hate our mother and father if we're going to follow him. Right. In Luke 14, 26. So really, it's more tied to this idea of who are we accepting and who are we willing to reject when it comes to following Jesus? We've got to put our faith in Christ, even if it means separating from mother and father. Doesn't mean that we we have animosity or hatred towards them. But in relationship to who we choose and who we don't choose, it's described as a love hate. Same is going on here with God and Jacob and Esau. Secondly, God has the right to do what he wants. He does not seek to offer explanations or apologies for his choices. He only reveals that it is not based on who or what we do. Right? It would be awesome if God said, here's why I chose Jacob and not Esau. But all we're told is why he didn't choose it. Right? He says, I I chose Jacob. It wasn't because of his character. It wasn't because of the choices he was going to make. And then you're expecting him to say, but here's why I did choose him. And he doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't tell us. God doesn't reveal it. He just leaves us hanging there. Kind of a question that we're going to have to continue to ponder and maybe get answered one day when Christ returns. We're simply told why he didn't do it. We're not told why he did do it. But to complain about it is to assume that I'm not being treated fairly and not receiving something I'm due. So we'd easily look at this passage and say, well, it's not fair for Esau to be treated this way as though Esau deserved anything differently, 
right? And that goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. What we learn about this, about God in this passage is that God is a gracious God by definition, meaning he gives things to people that they don't deserve. And to think that God is obligated to give to everybody equally is to then assume that everyone deserves these things and it's simply just not true according to scripture. I put in my notes, the moment we realize no one deserves God's grace is the moment we cease demanding it for everyone. The application for us, when we, when we see God and embrace God as having the right to operate as he chooses, I think it produces three things in us, and we'll close with this. When we embrace a God who is able to operate and to choose as he wants, it eliminates boasting in our life. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 kind of highlights for us the purpose for why God saves and why he does it the way that he does it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It removes boasting, as we said at the very beginning. If anything had to do with us, we would have reason to boast. All is a gift from God. All that we are, all that we become, all that we have, all that we will ever attain is all due to God's grace. As I was wrestling through this last night, I put in my notes, may I learn to swallow the difficult passages of God's grace because there is still much in me that wants to find a reason to boast. All right, like I, I want to believe that God has decided to do things in my life because I am in some way lovable to him. I've done something that would warrant it. And what we find here time and time again is that God does things in a way that removes all boasting. Number two, it encourages love for God. We're reminded in 1 John four nineteen that we love him because he first loved us. He sought us and he bought us, according to Romans 5, 8, when we were his enemies. And then number three, it encourages evangelism. When we believe that God is operating the way that he chooses, it encourages us. It reminds us that God has called us to go to carry out the plan that he's chosen to, to develop. We can be confident that as we go, people respond because he's chosen to save people. He's chosen to rescue people according to his glorious plan. All right. Um, like I said, it's a difficult passage. Romans 9, Malachi 1, Genesis 25, all kind of working together. There's some difficult doctrines there. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our podcast, Romans chapter 9, to get more insight into that passage. I wanted to try to pull all three together as best we could today in the time that we had um, as we advance forward in the narrative, talking about Jacob and Esau and how their lives unfold, realizing that it's all part of God's plan. He tells that to Rebecca. He tells her, I've got a plan in place for these boys and it will come to pass and it will come to pass the way that I want it to come to pass. Um, and that was an encouragement to Rebecca, I think, in the midst of a tumultuous pregnancy. Um, she's able to find encouragement, I think, in realizing that these boys will be born, that the pain that she's experiencing will subside, and that God has great plans in store that will eliminate any boasting before God. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you and thank you for uh, our passage this morning. Father, I pray that uh, we would be able to learn from the examples of Isaac and Rebecca that uh, prayer is our first resort, um, that we uh, should be persistent in our prayers. Um, God, I'm thankful uh, for those that have modeled this for us even today, people that um, have prayed persistently for things for years 
trusting that you were going to provide. God, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning that, uh, that there are things in our life that we desire to see happen that we can faithfully and continually pray and offer up to you and not be discouraged by a delayed response. So God, I pray that we would learn from Isaac uh, to pray, to pray persistently, but to, to specifically pray for things that you've promised to do. And we would find hope and encouragement in praying for things that are tied to your promises. And God, I pray that uh, we would be challenged, if nothing else, by looking at these passages today. Uh, Even if I've done a poor job of explaining them, God, I pray that it would ignite a desire in, in the lives of your people here to delve deeper into your scripture. Because you've provided some information here that helps us better understand you. Um, you've provided for us a, a map here that shows you as a God who is gracious, who does things absent from external factors that we would often consider. And so, God, I'm, I'm thankful, even though it's an attack upon my own pride, I'm thankful that anything you're doing in my life is based strictly upon your grace and not because I've deserved it or warranted it, God, I'm thankful that how you save me and how you work in my life is designed to kill all my desires to boast. And God, I pray that you would kill the pride in my life and the desire to be boastful about anything that I accomplished through your power. God, I pray that we would see you as a God who is glorious and jealous for that glory, a God who is operating in such a way where everything is designed for us to give you the praise and honor that you deserve. So God, I pray that we would leave here today um, challenged to study scripture further. Um, even if, if someone's sitting here and saying, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I see it that way. God, that we would be challenged to, to study scripture and to see you for who you are and to wrestle with some of these difficult passages and try to bring harmony to them based on what you revealed in other parts of scripture as well. So God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Uh, the time that we've had to, to look into it together today, I pray that it would not return void as you've promised, that you would grow us up in our faith and maturity. God, I pray that we would be um, faithful to persevere this week as we wait upon Jesus to return. And God, we do pray that Jesus would come soon, that he would come to restore and to correct and to find victory over all of his enemies once and for all and to usher us into eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.